You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. This morning, I'm joined by my friend Andy Ferguson. Andy was a former national correspondent for the Weekly Standard. You might have heard about that in the news. After the close of the Weekly Standard, David Brooks called Andy the greatest political writer of my generation. Andy was also a White House speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush, and we have had a recurring theme about talking about President Bush and his legacy by many people who have personal connections with George H.W. Bush, so we're going to talk with Andy a little bit about that, too. And Andy is also an author. He's written three books, Fool's Names, Fool's Faces, The Land of Lincoln, Adventures in Abe's America, and my personal favorite, Crazy You, One Dad's Crash Course on Getting His Kid into College. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here, Dale. I have to start with President Trump's speech. That is the big news of this week. Uh, Lots of people were watching it, and uh, there were various reactions to not only President Trump's address from the Oval Office, but also Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi's response that was given on broadcast news and cable news right after the president's address. What's your takeaway from President Trump's speech to the nation? Well, I I, uh, am not uh, particularly uh, a big fan of President Trump's, um, but it's quite clear that for whatever reason, this is become uh, an issue that he's placed at the very center of his presidency. And um, for some reason, the Democrats who are quite happy to spend money on almost anything are (laughs) reluctant to spend two and a half billion dollars to build a wall and then another two and a half billion dollars to hire more border guards and and upgrade detention facilities and that sort of thing. So I think if you have to look at one side or the other as being insincere and disingenuous, it's it's going to be the Democrats on this. Um, It's it's actually kind of bizarre to me that that they uh, have chosen to elevate this thing as a symbol of their own agenda, that that their big thing is to block funding for upgrading detention facilities simply so they can deny the president his campaign promise. Why do you think they feel like that is a successful political strategy for them? Apart from, like you point out, many of them, the, the leading opponents of President Trump's request for this money for border security and the wall, many of them are on record on videotape saying that they supported enhancing border security, that they understood walls work, that they oppose illegal immigration. Why do you think they have done this right turn and feel like it's politically important for them to oppose this policy, you know, regardless of it being President Trump's policy, but this specific policy. Right. Well, in, in, in their defense is that, that they agreed to the wall and enhanced uh, security as part of a larger package that included um, leniency for existing uh, illegal immigrants. So I, I imagine they just say the context has changed. But it's also clearly something that appeals to uh, the great majority of Democratic voters, one standing up to Trump and denying him one of his his central campaign promises, and two, doing something that looks more welcoming to uh, illegal immigrants that is appealing to, I think, 80 percent of their um, voting base. So uh, it, it's it's not too hard to, to figure out what they're doing. I just think that on the merits, or what they're trying to explain to be the merits of their case, that they fall pretty short. You raise a really important point that that was one of President Trump's campaign promises. Do you think that he should be emphasizing that he is trying to follow through on one of his campaign promises? Or do you think the more astute approach would be to emphasize that this is a national security concern, that it's a rule of law concern and that it goes above the campaign back and forth. I mean, as you know, plenty of politicians promise pie in the sky 
are never able to deliver that, uh, do you think that it it resounds better with the American people to say it's national security and rule of law rather than just, you know, kind of the opposite of of, um, just trying to blindly deliver what he said he would on the campaign trail? Right. Well, I think he, 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 he'd say that he, he made the promise on the campaign trail for all the reasons that you cite. I think right now they've got a little better shot problem. Um, they've got the campaign pledge, uh, very but probably the greatest concern to the people they're trying to appeal to. And then they have the national security part, and then they have the law enforcement, particularly the drug smuggling aspect of it, too. So it's sort of you know, it's kind of like a Swiss army knife sort of thing. What is it for? Well, it's got a can opener and it's got a screwdriver. and it's got... So, you know, it, it, it politically, that's generally not the kind of terrain you want to fight on um, where you when you're justifying yourself for four or five different reasons. If I were him, if I were advising him, which is the possibility is absolutely zero, um, <laughs> I would I'd tell him to uh, stick with the rule of law and the national security stuff, because that's the kind of thing that appeals to to the uh, to his voters and to, I think, the voters that are within his reach, even if they're not particularly Trumpy. Lindsey Graham has gotten a lot of press this fall for really sticking his neck out there and engaging very publicly on a lot of these debates after President Trump's address late, last night and the response from Senator Schumer and Representative Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi, Lindsey Graham came out there and said something to the effect of, listen, federal workers, you're going to get your back pay, but I'm sorry, Ms. Singh is not going to get her husband back. Now, he was referring to the wife of the police officer who was killed in California by an illegal immigrant, and he was referring to the federal workers historically have gotten paid for their time that they haven't even worked uh, as a part of the political compromise because they're seen as kind of pawns in all of this. And it's interesting because there has been a lot of denunciation of Senator Graham for bringing into this conversation uh, Ms. Singh and saying that it is wrong to take the death of someone and try and make a political point from it. And yet we see the same sort of thing done with any of the mass shootings that have happened or any of the gun deaths that have happened. And there's certainly, I think, it's instructive to look at the responses of the left on these types of political issues versus the responses of the right. And I'm interested to see if you think that Senator Graham was correct in pointing out that Ms. Singh will not get her husband back, or if you think this is a similar thing to the left talking about the victims of mass shootings and trying to bootstrap further gun regulations on those types of mass tragedies. There's no question that 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 um, Graham is using the death of this police officer as a political tool. There's no question, but that that a certain kind of uh, ideological mind will look at a uh, mass shooting and immediately jumped to the idea of gun confiscation. Um, liberals certainly are not worried about using the deaths of these poor children at the border, as appalling and terrible as those are, uh, as a way of um, shaming people who want tighter border security or shaming the zero tolerance policy about admissions to or asylum granting to migrants. You know, it's very hard to just uh, step back and try and find someone articulating positions that don't involve this kind of cynical manipulation of people's emotions. But that seems to be the field on which not just politicians, but professional party people, professional politicos and ideologues like to play on now. And it's, it's one of the reasons I think most people look at DC and look at politics and just think, Jesus, all these people are really kind of repulsive. It's, 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 I mean, what, what Graham did was pretty low, but what Democrats routinely do is pretty low too. And um, it's just, we just have to hope that this is a phase 
of the way we adjudicate our disagreements in the United States and someday it will come back to being grown-ups. It does make me recall Professor Jonathan Haidt's book where he was talking about the differences between essentially a conservative mindset and a liberal mindset. And I'm very badly paraphrasing what I think his thesis was, essentially saying that people on the left tend to approach things from emotional one-person narratives and people more on the right or tend to see things more from the right tend to approach it in a more logical fashion. So that popped into mind when you're talking about the playing field that we're on right now and the understanding that if we're going to have these types of discussions, and you brought it up, I think Alexandria Cortez Ocasio was talking about the two children who died on the border and she was speaking about it very passionately and that that is definitely going to resonate with a lot of listeners so is is there a way for conservatives or people who have more right-leaning tendencies to be able to be engaged in these debates without being able without having to go into really first-person narrative heartstring type of stories well certainly you know Uh, Republicans and conservatives have tried that quite a bit over the years. I mean, I remember (laughs) you'd mentioned my speechwriting sojourn. uh, It only lasted a year, thank God. But um, (laughs) it was a a very, uh, it was part of the Republican playbook that you to find stories of individuals um, that could then exemplify a particular policy position or a social problem that needed to be righted. And, of course, Trump does this all the time. Um, I'm sure when he does the State of the Union later this this um, this month, that he'll have somebody sitting up in the gallery next to Mrs. Trump, and they'll, you know, showcase this person who's going through some trauma or somehow represents a, a problem that needs to be solved. So it's it just doesn't – I mean, I think hate is on pretty solid ground when he says that conservatives and liberals tend to approach these things differently – uh, but it's not for lack of trying that that um, Republicans don't usually connect on that personal, individualized, I'd say even kind of sentimental level. Um, it's just not the way Republican voters think. Well, uh, to me, the, one of Hate's great findings, and I think the science on it is very good, is that in several different kinds of experiments and tests, what you see is that people on the right tend to uh, understand liberal positions and explain liberal positions and justify them much better than people on the left can justify conservative positions or explain them. And this has happened in experiment after experiment. Um, And of course, it's conservatives who are supposed to lack empathy and that sort of thing. But really, when it comes to intellectual empathy, to really trying to understand what the other side is saying, conservatives and Republicans seem to be much better at it than uh, do liberals and Democrats, who tend to just assume the other side is filled with people of bad character, and that's why they take the positions they do. Do you think we see that because conservatives and people who are right-leaning grow up in schools where they're I don't want to say, I I don't mean indoctrinated, like literally indoctrinated, but they're certainly exposed to those kind of more left-leaning ideas every day, certainly when they go to college uh, and definitely in a lot of workplaces. Do you think possibly they they have a better fluency with, with ideas on the left because they have had to operate in that environment from the very earliest ages and perhaps people who are left-leaning haven't really confronted anything but caricatures of what right-held positions are. Yeah, I I couldn't put it any better than you just did. I I think that that's exactly true, or certainly it it would account for a lot of what hate has found. I mean, we we live and swim in a culture of journalism and entertainment all of which is, and as you say, education, particularly higher education, but also um, primary and secondary schools that is that are 
tilted to the left that, that operate on on assumptions uh, of of the left, not necessarily the hard left, but but of things that are not right of center. And um, so it's it's not at all surprising, given that that that, that uh, conservatives would have a better sort of working knowledge, as it were, of what liberals are about than the other way around. You mentioned working for President George H.W. Bush for a year, and I have two questions related to him. The first is, when he passed away recently, there was a lot of discussion about his read my lips, no new taxes promise. Do you think that if President Trump loses this fight, the shutdown fight over his signature campaign promise to build a wall, that it will be equivalent to the read my lips backpedal by President George H.W. Bush, or do you think it is a different animal? Well, that's a really good question. And I, to tell you the truth, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. I mean, when you look back at, and uh, in, in Bush people, whom I count myself one, I was a great admirer of President Bush. Um, but I noticed in, in getting back in touch with a lot of people in the events surrounding the funeral, um, people look back at that uh, uh, breaking of that read my lips tax pledge as a kind of an act of heroism. And in hindsight, can't we see how wise it was? And yes, he sacrificed right. the second term for it. I see that completely differently. I think that. Um, and, and there are a few people from the Bush White House who agree with me that you can really trace the Tea Party and Trumpism back to that. Uh, it's not an exact cause and effect, but it was a moment at which a large segment of uh, certainly conservative leaning voters said, wow, we can't even trust them, a politician to keep that explicit of a promise. You know, they, you, we can't trust these people to do anything. And the alienation that was caused by that from the structure of the Republican Party by people who were inclined to be its supporters was instant. And the next year, there was this crazy man out of Texas named Ross Perot uh, running a third party candidacy based exactly on that kind of sense of alienation. And it runs all the way through Pat Buchanan and into the Tea Party and Trump is the ultimate manifestation. So it's sort of um, kind of ironic or paradoxical that the people who want to defend Bush's breaking of that no tax pledge are also the people who most detest Trump. Um, because I think it's a very plausible historical argument to say that that breaking of that single promise to the electorate uh, is what set in motion this this constant alienation from the political process and from the Republican Party in particular. I think that's a brilliant analysis. I have never put those ideas together, and I am definitely going to chew on that. I think as you were talking, I was recalling uh, President Bush's funeral, and I don't know if you were there, if you listened to it, Senator Simpson talked specifically about the process that they used to convince President Bush to go back on that promise. And as part of the case that Senator Simpson was making, he started listing the things that had to be done or there would be you know, a catastrophic result if President Bush did not go back on that promise and um, essentially support the signing of the particular bill. And they were so non-significant. I don't even remember what Senator Simpson said, but it was things like, you know, a Medicare fix. And it's, and when he was saying them, I was just thinking, wow, this is the most unpersuasive thing. Like, even if you thought President Bush should have uh, raised taxes and did that and was a good character, listing the things that were part of that bill was extremely unpersuasive in my mind. <laughs> right. I remember, I remember having that feeling listening to him that I had the same, uh, the same reaction. You know, it's also too bad because um, Bush actually did several very courageous uh, against the tide kind of things when he was um, 
and I mean against the establishment side uh, sort of positions when he was president. One of the one of his great great achievements, which is not very seldom talked about, simply because it was such a complete achievement, was solving the savings and loan crisis of the late '80s and right. the early '90s. It was an ex- I used to have to write about it as a as a reporter and editorial writer, and it was extremely boring. I mean, it was so technical, <laughs> but it was exactly the kind of thing that a government guy like George H.W. Bush was built for. And by God, if after three years, they had essentially put this thing to bed. Now, if they had not done that, consider the time, what was going on in the world with the fall of the Soviet Union was it was about to implode. Eastern Europe had been liberated, but it was broke. Germany was trying to reunite. If the world had been led by a weakened United States, then it would have been much weaker had we not solved that savings and loan debt crisis. Um, things would have turned out very differently. It's a strange thing about government that when people actually do it very well and do the things that government does and does it well, people forget about it and people don't get any credit for it. But it's the kind of thing that Bush was made to do. And it's one of the things that I think made him a great man and made his presidency much more consequential than people realize. I'm so delighted to hear that because that was going to be my next question. What was something that you specifically remembered from his presidency that you thought made a real difference? And it sounds like you're saying that it's kind of the idea of the dog that didn't bark. And because President Bush had those skills and those talents and the interest to do something super boring and technical and, and invest himself in that and his advisors and his you know, political capital into that, even though it wasn't sexy, it was something that made a real difference, not only in America, but on the national stage, uh, on the international stage as well. Yes, we were a much stronger country. We were able to lead much more forthrightly um, than it would have been otherwise if he hadn't figured out a way to solve that domestic crisis of debt. So I mentioned a little bit earlier about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she also created a Twitter storm, media storm, by suggesting in an interview with Anderson Cooper that we needed to go to a 70% tax rate. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that policy proposal? (laughs) What was that stupid line that Obama used on on, uh, poor Mitt Romney, you know, the the 1980s call, they want your... (laughs) foreign policy back. And, right. you know, I feel like, it, the, you know, the 1950s call, they, they want their fiscal policy back. It's just, you know, it, this is another one of these many thousands of ironies that, that take place in our political discourse, which is the, the first president who really understood the damaging effects of, and in fact, the revenue reducing effects of high marginal tax rates was John Kennedy. And who is uh, who is one of the great worshipers of John Kennedy in the United States today in American politics is Nancy Pelosi. He said quite forthrightly, our rates are so high that they're actually reducing revenue to the government. And if we want to reduce uh, or increase revenue to the government, we have to lower marginal tax rates. Now, he lowered it from 90 down to 70. By the time Reagan was out of office 25 years later, it was the highest marginal tax rate was 28%. And the revenue was flowing in. In fact, it, it was gushing in so much that they actually balanced the budget about eight or nine years later. Um, so it's, you know, they just, it, it, these sort of elementary lessons just have to be re, relearned, re-explained, retaught every generation or so. Um, I think also there's a certain disingenuousness to what she's doing. Basically, she doesn't like people who make a lot of money. Right. And or who make more money than she does. Um, and and this and you know, for all the sort of economic talk, it's basically it's punitive. Uh, you want to raise taxes on people because the more money they earn, the less they've actually earned it. The less right. they deserve it. And so it's for the you know to talk about oh we need to raise rates and all that. Um, it's basically because they want to punish people who made a lot of dough. 
why do you think she's getting so much attention? And is it a good thing that she's getting attention in the sense of what you just said of educating people, making them understand uh, what the implications of these sorts of off-the-cuff proposals are? Or is it bad that she's getting so much attention because then she's being inflated as some sort of kind of celebrity in the political sphere? Well, I, I, I think it depends on where what your own politics are. If, if you know, if I were a, a moderate Democrat, uh, I, I'd want to let just like lock her in the bathroom and not let her out because um, <laughs> what, what, what she's what, what she's saying is extremely appealing to a very or relatively small part of the Democratic voter base. Um, she's articulating something that people really really a whole worldview that people really passionately believe on the democratic left that is absolutely impossible to enact utterly impractical i was actually stepping to be going over the green new deal the other day the actual legislation that's been drafted and i mean i i actually laughed out loud a couple of times because it's so utterly otherworldly in its assumptions and in, in what it thinks how it thinks people will behave and respond to incentives and such. It's just, it, it's really, it's like something put together by a very earnest 11th grader, you know, for his poli sci class or something. And right. um, so I, it, it cannot help Democrats who are really, and there are responsible Democrats who don't want to cripple the economy. It must, they, it must just drive them crazy to see this woman get all this attention for an agenda that would, absolutely sink their party but I, to me it's not I, I love her i mean i think she's fantastic i love her i follow her on instagram um i like her um i like her whole affect i just i think she's a wonderful representation of that slice of the democratic party and i i you know i wish we had some more charisma on the republican side that um you know not like her but i mean at least somebody who who kind of who kind of understood the show business of politics as perfectly as she does. So you were not one of the people who were offended by her dance video, I take it. No, no. And you know what? This is a sincere question. Do you know anybody who was offended? No. I mean, I looked at it and I thought she's utterly charming. and, And it's a bunch of college kids jumping around with the school mascot and, I, you know, I think that there was one person on the right who was offended and whoever it was that he or she had that anonymous account and put out this ridiculous tweet, which allowed the New York Times and the Washington Post and USA Today and GQ and Vogue, everybody else to say uh, the right wing can't even stand to have a, a young woman have fun dancing on a rooftop with her friends. And I don't know any right winger. who was offended by that. I really don't. Well, and doesn't that play into President Trump's fake news idea? I mean, it seems like it's the gift that keeps giving. It's something that people on the right and conservatives have always been disgusted about uh, their treatment in the mainstream media. And yet here's another example, an anonymous tweet. It wasn't like President Trump denounced her dancing or any, you know, major political commentators. Right, right. It is it is um, handing it to him on a silver platter. Whoever that, whatever the person's name was, um, Anonymous 76 or something, whoever that person is should just keep quiet. <laughs> You're not doing anybody any favors. <laughs> well, yes, you are. You're doing a lot of favors to to uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and her friends, but that's about it. So you touched on the Green New Deal what do you think the future of healthcare and healthcare freedom is going to be with this new uh, majority ship in the House and the divided government? Do you think we're going to see any changes or is it just going to be a bunch of bills passed by the House that are perhaps extreme in their uh, proposals or ideas and we're just going to continue to have healthcare reform kind of stalled? I think it's the latter. I, I think everything will just go sideways for a long time. Of course, this was always the, 
the the best argument against Obamacare and why some of us fought so ferociously against it was once it was in there, it was going to be very, very hard to get rid of. Yeah. And of course, they have they have undone a couple of things, which actually may make the system even more cumbersome and wasteful. Uh, Republicans have, I mean, by in in um, some of the reforms they've done. Um, in uh, you know, but but the bulk of it is just going to sit there and kind of messing with people's lives. And uh, it it was that's the the great tragedy of of massive government reforms like that is um, that you can't undo them once they're done, no matter how conditions change or how political opinions change. Um, once you've got a, a huge tank parked right there. It's very hard to move. Right. That was what one of the um, labor secretaries said, Francis Perkins, said back in after the New Deal was passed, that once you get these programs in there, no politician is ever going to be able to take them away. So I think you're right. A lot of people fought it at the get-go because they understood that once it was in there, despite many Republican politicians' promises to get it out by root and branch, that would be an almost you know, impossible, daunting task. So I want to switch a little yeah. bit, speaking about Obamacare, to the Supreme Court. I'm sure you followed the Kavanaugh hearings closely in the fall, and I'm curious what you think uh, the direction of the court is going to be and if we're going to see any interesting things uh, happening in the news with the Supreme Court in 2019. Well, I'm not uh, I'm not a close enough court, court watcher. I mean, I have an amateur interest and a rooting interest in it, but I really can't. I don't know what what cases are uh, going to be heard this fall and spring. I mean, I, I suppose the, the the great drama that everyone will want to latch on to, at least from a journalistic point of view, is is the whether the conservative block actually holds as a conservative block or whether uh, conservatives worst fears about um john roberts are going to hold true and which he kind of grows into an anthony kennedy kind of figure but that's really about as far as i can i can talk about the supreme court well it's interesting that you say that because i've i've had many interviews on the kavanaugh issue and gorsuch and the supreme court generally and i think there's a real misapprehension by a lot of americans of what conservatives want on the Supreme Court. They don't really want conservative justices. They don't want justices who will deliver conservative policy or justices who would deliver their policy preference outcomes in any particular case. And I think that's something that really gets lost on people because conservatives want fair and independent judges. They want to leave the power to the people. And even if we lose, let, let, let's take the transgender case, for example. That, that's been a huge controversy with a lot of laws back and forth. Under the Obama administration, there was a dear colleague letter that went out from the Department of Education trying to rewrite the meaning of the word sex in Title IX for all schools K through 12. And I think when you look at the types of judges that conservatives want on any federal court, district, appeal appellate or supreme court they don't want the judiciary used as a naked power organ they really want the judiciary used as the um, interpreter of laws and to make sure that the constitution is followed and and trusting in the rule of law but leave the power to the people do you have any thoughts on that as well well i i certainly agree with you on that but i i think one of the things that the Kavanaugh uh, hearing demonstrated was, in, in fact, in a very vivid, in fact, vicious form, was how deeply the left and Democrats have become committed to the view that the, that the court is simply another political body, that it's kind of the political body of last resort. So when you want to... Um, you know, make law about abortion, and you can't do it through the legislature. You make law by having the right Supreme Court justices. But I think it also showed the degree to which 
conservatives are starting to feel that way about the court. And I mean, oh. I agree. I think you you said perfectly that um, what what the ideal conservative view is. Um, but you start to see some conservatives. I mean, like I think George Will is one of the sort of canaries in the coal mine on this. Um, start talking about, you know, let's stop kidding ourselves. This is a policymaking body, and uh, it's a it's a uh, we need to shift the balance of power so that the policy gets made our way. And there are people who actually um, agree with that now and who kind of given up the, the notion of ju judicial independence. And yet the ratchet seems to always go leftward. So take, for example, gay marriage. I don't know what your opinion on gay marriage is. And, you know, people have differing views on that. Um, plenty of people thought that it should be left with the states because it was a traditional area of law that states made the decisions on, not the Supreme Court. Obviously, the Supreme Court made a final decision on that. And once that happens, that's not going to be changed. That that will never, right. ever, ever be changed. So I, I feel like if George Will is saying that, I'm going to have to go look that up. That's very fascinating to me. And I'm curious what other um, kind of uh, conservative intellectuals are saying this as well. Um, but I feel like the more traditional or uh, limited government type understanding of our system of democracy will be undermined if we do adopt that position of the left because we will always lose because it inevitably it all ratchets to the left. Yeah, I think that's true simply because that's the way it is in the nature of government to expand. It's just part of the, the way the organism works and it's um, as long as it's alive it will continue to seek new avenues of control um, but uh, the you know I mean the the, the Obergefell decision on gay marriage was simply an act of judicial imperialism it was bullying yes. it was just re reaching into every community in the United States from from that temple on Capitol Hill uh, where the Supreme Court sits and and telling them uh, what to think and how they now have to behave. It was, it's, it, to me, it's appalling by anybody who, who believes in self-government. Um, but, you know, that one's, I guess that one's over, as you say. Right, right. And, and just take the, it, the whole gay issue out of it and just say about anything else, any other issue, is that really how we want our system to operate, that you can get five people? Five people. No, I don't care if they're platonic guardians, the smartest people you've ever met in your entire life. But there's certainly been a lot of criticism that the people on the Supreme Court are all very similar. They don't have a lot of diversity of viewpoint or experience um, in, in many ways. I mean, they all attended Ivy League schools, for example, and they're all lawyers. So they think like, you know, law school teaches you how to think like a lawyer instead of like a psychologist or, you know, other medical professional. And I, I'm just surprised if you can take that particular issue out of it, that there wasn't outrage. I mean, because why can't Massachusetts be Massachusetts? They passed or they, you know, allowed gay marriage and let Texas be Texas. And why is there not fundamental outrage about that? And I guess it's because of the underlying policy issue. Yeah, it's that's because you you will see there are times when I, I know Justice Breyer is a big big fan of this of, of taking the conservative argument and turning it on its head and accusing the uh, conservative justices of legislating from the bench yes. and making law <laughs> rather than interpreting right. it. And he's very facile at using that argument against conservatives. And so they've learned a lot. I mean, they've learned a lot rhetorically about this, but. You know, it's, this is especially true about the five guys in the uh, and women deciding this. You don't, you don't, as you say, you don't want any five people to have that kind of power in a in a self governing nation, even if they are the smartest people. But you especially don't want them if they're five people who went to law school. Right. I mean, people talk about how how terrible higher education is nowadays and how it's become indoctrination in certain kinds of worldviews. The law schools are 10 times worse 
than even the, the most liberal arts colleges are now. And they particularly the elite law schools. Particularly the elite, elite law elite schools. Law. Yes. Right. Right. So maybe if we could ban anyone who's been to law school from serving on the Supreme Court, um, we would all be better <laughs> off. No, <laughs> and, and, no more lawyers on the Supreme Court. Yes, yes. And I, I think we would definitely see a lot more humility, perhaps, on some of these very broad-reaching uh, types of decisions that come out. So I'm going to switch a little bit, and I've got two little final topics to talk with you about. Uh, the 2020 presidential election is gearing up. We saw Elizabeth Warren stick her exploratory committee out there. And we're seeing more interest and enthusiasm from both sides. Do you have any predictions about what is going to happen or what we should look for going into the 2020 presidential, I guess, beauty show? Well, um, I have one one big overriding arching uh, prediction, which is that all my predictions will be wrong. So <laughs> I, love it. I have I have. Utterly lost any faith in my prognostication uh, ability, uh, and and to tell you the truth, after 2016, with the exception of a, a handful of people that I know of who are professional political analysts, everybody ought to stop making predictions. Just get out of the prediction business altogether. <laughs> um, having said that, <laughs> let me tell you my prediction. Yes. Um, uh, I actually, I actually do not think that the left wing of the party, um, the sort of the Ocasio-Cortez wing of the party represented by Sanders or Warren um, is going to end up being the dominant uh, wing of the party. I think that there's too many sort of old graybeards, grayhead uh, parties still who just want to win. And I realize that that anyone too radical like Warren or Sanders is simply not going to um, not going to be able to win the day, even against someone like Trump. Um, on the other hand, if they do nominate someone slightly more sober-minded, uh, they're almost certainly going to face a challenge from the left, which will only enhance Trump's uh, chances. The other thing is that I've learned is that the people who everyone thinks is the no-brainer winner in a year before New Hampshire is almost never the winner. I mean, I covered George, I mean, I covered um, Jeb Bush. Um, yes. I covered um, uh, John McCain back in 2000. I mean, I, I covered George Allen uh, in 2008. He was a shoe-in. Um, it's just, there, you really have to, so I, I feel the same way when I look at Elizabeth Warren. You know, she's the big name. She's the one that's getting all the attention. And then when you actually watch her on the stump and watch her campaign, she is so terrible that she's she's really someone who could only get elected in Massachusetts, I think. Um, so I assume that she'll be gone by the end of the year, which means for my overwriting overarching prediction that she may be the nominee. <laughs> if, I, if I'm saying she's going to be out by the end of the year, who knows? Well, we will check back in with you about that. I have a funny story. I was in Boston just by chance the morning that she revealed the results of her DNA test. And I was standing in line in Starbucks in Boston. And the woman in front of me was talking about, oh, Elizabeth Warren has proven President Trump wrong. And he's going to have to apologize to her. And I thought, OK, this is just Boston. They just say crazy things here. Um, obviously, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. And then I got my drink and my my tea and and started looking, scrolling through Twitter and realized, oh, that was the day she had released the information about um, her DNA. And it's fascinating to me because I would I would have loved to have gone back and found that woman a week or two later and to see if she still held the opinion that Elizabeth Warren had proven President Trump wrong about her DNA or if the woman like that type of news gets out there and then people who are inclined to believe what their favorite people say still believe that 
or if she would have, you know, had some revelation that it wasn't actually Native Americans from North America and it was, you know, a very small percentage, many, many generations, and the tribe, the tribe's people had, you know, kind of disavowed what she said and were offended by it. So I feel like that's kind of a interesting thing about politics generally that that people don't spend their day looking at political stuff, but they catch snippets of news and then that informs their opinion. And then they kind of cling to that. So I'm wondering if you have kind of any experiences like that as well, where uh, there's been some news story that has kind of gone in one direction and then it's gone the other direction. And yet people are still kind of stuck on the first impression of the story rather than oh, yeah. extensive reporting that came afterwards. Yeah, you see that all the time. In fact, there's there's um, a lot of interesting uh, literature in psychological science. Psychological science is generally not very reliable, but but there's a lot of interesting stuff about information flows and how people retain information and let other information go, and when they start to become certain about one position and then they foreclose contrary information about it. Um, this was sort of one of the things that makes our current media environment so awful is that that there are stuff is coming at you in little chunks and, uh, you know, on alerts, news alerts and things like that, that are not conducive to, you know, actual deliberation and, and making informed decisions. I see that all the time. So I was a Trump supporter. I am still a Trump supporter. Um, and I also want to share with you that the Weekly Standard was a favorite magazine in my household. Um, my, my, particularly my son would every day ask me, is the new Weekly Standard here? Is the new Weekly Standard? And he would get so excited reading about it. Um, and so I'm very sad to see that go, even though, as I said, I'm a Trump supporter. Uh, but I am curious what kind of grade you would what grade would you give President Trump for his presidency so far, given that a lot of the things that you support he's doing? And then there's also obviously a lot of baggage that, you know, a lot of people don't support. So I'm curious if you yeah. if you were the teacher and you were giving him a grade, what grade would you give him? Well, I liked I liked I always liked those um, those report cards that had you know you got a you got a, uh, a one grade for participation in class and yes. one grade for attendance and one grade for deportment and you know all all those kinds of old old fashioned things rather good than citizenship. An, an over yeah good citizenship which I don't think the president gets a good grade in but um, so anyways it, I I couldn't give him an overall thing at, you know a unitary grade uh he's done uh, just in purely political or i shouldn't say political in policy terms uh he's done things that i approve of that obviously i'm sure you know we all on our side uh approve of especially the deregulation and um, uh standing up to some of these ridiculous international agreements that are nothing but meaningless and troublemaking um, right. Of course, I, I approve of his Supreme Court um, uh, nominees and now justices. Uh, both of them, I think, are first-rate um, choices. Uh, but I, I still worry that those very successes, things like the tax cuts, for example, or deregulation, are going to become so associated in the public mind, and I'm not talking about among Republicans, I'm talking right. about the 60% of the country that is not Republican, uh, are going to be so associated with his own personal uh, shortcomings and deficiencies, the name calling and the thin skin and the, um, the refusal to let things just go, the refusal to let, to, in a word, to behave what I consider to be presidentially that that failure in his part is going to become associated in a practical way with support for limited government, greater individual liberty, and all the things that we truly prize. So if you say, for example, well, you know, we really need to get the capital gains tax even lower down to, I don't know, 12% or something. Yes. Oh, wait. Oh, now you, you sound like a Trump person. <laughs> oh, so I suppose you get, you know, 
And I think that in the end, there's a very real chance that, that Trump will be so personally discredited that he'll take all the ideas that he's, that he's enforced and enacted along with him. That, that to me is the long-term danger of the president's undeniable vulgarity. I think everybody agrees about his personal shortcomings. Um, but I think that it's more than simply compartmentalizing his vulgarity and his policy successes. I think one is going to bleed into the other, and it may do damage to the Republican or conservative cause far into the future. So he's definitely charismatic. This makes me think of the earlier part of this discussion where you were saying you wish there was somebody on the right who was as charismatic as Alexandria and young. So do you do you see anyone who has glimmers of being that? Or do you think someone is going to have to kind of, well, do you think it's possible for a conservative to have that kind of um, charisma that she does? And do you see anyone who has a glimmer of being able to develop that? Or is it just innate? <laughs> well, that's a, you know, that's a really great point because how would I put it? Charisma is a left-wing value <laughs> in a sense, you know, charisma ah. is, is, is by definition, superficial, um, of the moment, fleeting. And, and it, it, what I think conservatism represents is things that are more fixed, solid, uh, even less colorful if you want. Um, right. So it's, it's kind of hard to, I mean, Reagan, of course, is the one that everybody always points to Reagan's charisma was of a, a particular kind. For one thing, he was had been movie star handsome. You know, I mean he was a movie star, so and I remember being yes. around him when he would come into a room. I mean it really was like you were looking at I, I remember the movie Roger Rabbit was out at the time I I spent time with him and, and it was almost like a cartoon figure had walked into a real life setting because there was something <laughs> so animating about this guy. I mean you you were just and it's not because he was the most famous man in the world, but it was just, you were just, your eyes just went to him. And um, I've never seen that. And as, as much as I loved the old President Bush, he absolutely did not have that. And charisma itself is rare, but charisma in a thoroughly, responsibly conservative politician is very hard to imagine. And I think Reagan just broke the mold on that. Did Sarah Palin have it? Well, she was never to my taste, so I don't know. I, I, it, it, I never saw her as charismatic, so I, 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 I just lack that particular neuron receptor or something that, that people right. uh, that she activated in other people. Well, I am so excited to have spoken with you, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you. This is Gail Trotter. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can support this show on Patreon. Thank you for joining us. This is Right in D.C. You're Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.